2: Wesley Wilcox was not only known as a great pastor, but he was a wonderful educator. He served for 23 years on the campus of God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio. He preached this sermon in 1979 at the Dayton, Ohio Interchurch Holiness Convention and he titles it, Holiness. I know you will enjoy this wonderful sermon.
0: Keep passing it on, keep passing it on and I don't want to lose the vision, I don't
2: I certainly should not need to give any apology for speaking on the subject of holiness from a platform of the Interchurch Holiness Convention. It's been dealt with again and again, already has been during this convention, but while I'm not giving any apology, maybe I should give a reason for the particular way in which I Feel we should approach it this morning. We are living in times when there are a great many pressures, pressures from the cultural surroundings and from the religious temper of our age that affect us. They affect us perhaps far more than we realize they do. I'm not talking about uh, consciously adopting the ways of the world or trying to fall into the stream of worldly influences but one cannot help but be affected by the thought the ways of thinking of the age in which you live and I am afraid that already some of the pressures from the cultural and religious circumstances of our day are having their effect upon us perhaps unconsciously just let me uh, give one of the reasons this would by no means exhaust them all but let me give one of the reasons why I think that is happening of course you're all aware of the great upsurge of the charismatic emphasis uh, right across the religious world and then there's a counter move in revolt against that by a lot of people not not just merely wholeness people but other people uh, that tend to try to fight against or to uh, take a stand against that charismatic interpretation and sometimes they swing off the other direction Well, sometimes we get caught in the middle if we aren't careful. There's only one safety. That's stick by the book. Our doctrine of holiness is not just merely a theological proposition which we teach in a classroom or which we put in our theology books it is a biblical truth. It's based upon the Word of God. Now, I know it's very, very easy for us to pick up texts and preach from them and get some, something that will stir people a great deal and have a, have a lot of good effect. I'm not denying that at all. But sometimes in doing so, we may fail to take into account the scriptural basis, foundation for what we have to say Now, the subject of wholeness could be approached from the Word from a number of different starting points. I have no idea how many. There are a great many different places where you can start the subject of wholeness. I've chosen to use a text from the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Brother Humble sort of scared me a little bit last night. sounded like when he announced his subject, and then when he took his text, he was just going to... Uh, give what I wanted but he preached all around it isn't that nice? Uh, I certainly appreciated his thoughtfulness Uh, but he did give us a wonderful background uh, and wove a a good pattern of truth against which I would like to present something further I will use two or three of the texts to which he made reference uh, and fortunately he just made reference and passed on without talking very much about them at least not in the way I want to present them for our text then if you want to look in the 24th chapter of the gospel according to Luke, verse 49, words spoken by our Lord on the occasion of his last conversation with his disciples uh, when he was just about to be translated into heaven, just before the ascension. And he said to them, And, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. It is the latter part of that text that I would especially like to call to your attention. uh, Until ye be endued with power from on high. Now I'm sure if you look at that text or if you even think about it and are aware of the arrangement of chapters in the book of Luke, you know that this is a promise referring directly to Pentecost because this was his last conversation with them, and only a few days later, the Pentecost event took place. So that this is very plainly a reference to Pentecost, which was to follow in just a few days. Now, over and over and over again, we do have scriptures which do refer to Pentecost. This uh, statement, I have read to you, ye shall be endued with power from on high, is one of the texts that is, that is especially being used, twisted, to present something that I believe is unscriptural, and I think you think is unscriptural. One of the best ways of finding its true meaning is to put it in its place. That is, where does it fit into scripture? And we do have a large number of other scriptures which either by way of promise or by way of record do present to us what happened on the day of Pentecost. Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit here. Now, the word Holy Spirit is not used in the text, but there's no question, I think, in any Bible interpreter's mind but what this is a plain reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, there are a lot of other promises. And then there's the record of the fulfillment. And then there are some comments on the fulfillment after it took place. Now, I think a number of scriptures that we can gather together are scriptures about which there would be no debate in anybody's mind. I'm aware that there are certain scriptures that you can pick up and you can say, well now what does this refer to? And it may not be quite plain and there might be a lot of disagreement. I'm going to stay off that that ground. Stick by a foundation that I think we all recognize. These are verses of scripture which do refer to Pentecost. At least then we'll have a foundation on which to build, uh, where we are in agreement and we recognize this is what the Scripture is talking about. Uh, This passage of Scripture points to three things. First of all, it points to an event. That event, of course, was Pentecost. Then it it points to a person, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the person who is the central personality of that event at Pentecost. Pentecost. And then this text of Scripture also points to some effects. He shall be endued with power from on high. Well, let's take a little while to look at each one of those three. And to come back to the question of the event and the Scriptures that describe the event. I think we may find Scriptures describing the event in four places, five places, pardon me. First of all, John the Baptist promised it. Secondly, Jesus himself promised it language about which there can be no question. Then there are a few scriptures still from Jesus, but they are scriptures that either took place on the same day or just about the same day, just before his, his uh, ascension, following his resurrection. Then there are the scriptures in the, first, in the second chapter of Acts uh, which describe the event. And then there are scriptures later in the book of Acts which look back to, the day of Pentecost, and have something to say about it. Well, let's just briefly describe uh, those uh, passages. Uh, I'm not going to take time to read them in detail. I don't want to even quote them fully. Uh, I'll just try to pick up enough of the phraseology of each one of them and give you the reference, in case you want to copy the references and compare them later. Uh, I think a very, very worthwhile study can be made. You actually put these scriptures one under another and compare them. If I had a blackboard up here, of course, I'm a teacher and uh, I, I can talk better with chalk on my fingers, uh, but uh, if you can just uh, make a list of these and maybe make a uh, a list of your own on a blackboard or a piece of paper or a chart or something of that sort, just to compare what God says. It's always well to compare Scripture with Scripture. This is one of the things that uh, the Bereans were complimented for because they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were true. Well, That's our only safety here. We're going to be swept away with some of the isms or the tendencies of the isms or the reactions against the isms unless we stick with the book. Unless we come back and stand on the sure foundation of the thus saith the Lord. Well, let's run rapidly through those. I'll give you the references. We go back to John the Baptist. In each one of the Gospels, there is a record of John the Baptist's prophecy or promise that "...though he baptized with water, there was coming another after him who would baptize with the Holy Ghost." Now, we have the record given to us in Matthew. Mark and Luke give nearly the same language, a little shorter, but not quite, uh, not quite as long, but substantially the same thing. So, I'll quote only the passage from Matthew 3, 11, and 12. When John the Baptist said, "...I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance." But there's another coming after me. He's mightier than I. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Then, of course, we have the statement of Jesus in John, where he says, This is he that baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I guess I forgot to write down that reference. It's the first chapter of the Gospel of John, in case you want to look. Those are promises or statements coming from John the Baptist. And I think there can be no question in anybody's mind but what they look ahead to Pentecost. Now let's look at Jesus' special promises concerning the coming of the Spirit. They're concentrated. These are not his only ones, but the concentration of his promises are in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel according to John. Look in John 14, verses 15 and 16. He said, He shall give you another comforter Talking about his having to go away, but the Father will give you another Comforter who shall abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Look on down the same chapter, 1426. The Comforter, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send. Notice I'm just quoting a part of the text in each case for the sake of time. Look to the next chapter, 1526. The Comforter is come, whom I will send, even the Spirit of truth. You see, he goes to the trouble of identifying the Comforter with the Holy Ghost and with the Spirit of truth. In 16, verses 7 and 8, The, the Comforter, whom I will send, and when he is come. And then look on again, sixteen thirteen, The Spirit of truth is come. He will guide you. Now, those are the five main passages uh, in the, those three chapters of the Gospel of John which talk about the coming of the Spirit. Jesus' own promises just a little while before his death uh, talking about the coming of another Comforter. Then, let's look at the promises that Jesus made after his resurrection. Three of them. One of them I read to you as a text uh, talking about the promise of the Father and then saying he shall be endued with power from on high. Yeah. The name of the Spirit is not there, but certainly we know what he is referring to. In Acts 1, there are two statements. First of all, uh, Jesus looked back to John, the very passages I talked about a moment ago and quoted partially for you. John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And then just a few verses later, this would be in the 8th verse of the first chapter of Acts, uh, when they had asked the question uh, uh, about, the coming, about the restoration of the kingdom, uh, he said, uh, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Then he went on to say, But ye shall receive power of the Holy Ghost coming upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, those are promises all occurring before Pentecost coming right up just almost to the eve of Pentecost, given the last ones I've quoted, Jesus' last conversation prior to his ascension. Now let's look at the second chapter of Acts, in which we have the fulfillment. And here, all of them in in Acts 2, you'll find these statements, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now there were a number of accompanying signs, tongues of fire, speaking in languages that were not their native languages. There was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. But the key thing, the important thing, is not any of those exterior manifestations. It is the fact they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Peter, in explaining this, went back to the prophet Joel, who had foretold it back in Old Testament times. And he quoted in verse 17, and then repeated again the same language in verse 18. I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. Then, going on to verse 33, still in Peter's explanation, his sermon in explanation of what was occurring on that day. He's talking about the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, He now exalted the right hand of God, and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. And then, three verses, five verses later, verse 38, uh, he says to the people there who now were cut to the heart with conviction, uh, cried out, what shall we do? He pointed out to them, you aren't in a condition yet to receive this gift. Uh, You must repent. But, If you will repent, then you can become an eligible candidate to receive the same gift. Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, following the day of Pentecost, uh, sometime afterward, uh, Peter went down to Cornelius' household, and a somewhat similar event transpired. Uh, Now, uh, of course, you can find a lot of speculations and so forth as to the condition of Cornelius, uh, whether he... uh, who was merely a heathen who got saved, or whether he was already in, in a relationship with God so that he could receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? Uh, I want to point out to you in a moment that Peter very, very clearly identifies Cornelius' condition, so we don't need to argue it at all. But. but he does say, and I want to call this to your attention right now, he does say that the two events are the same. And in talking about what happened at Cornelius' household, He looks back and equates it with what happened at Pentecost. I'll come back to that in a moment. But let's look at the statements. In in Acts chapter 10, you will find the story of his going down to Cornelius' household. And in verse 44, you will find it said, The Holy Ghost fell on them, that is, Cornelius and his household, which may very well have included people from Italy and from other sections of the Roman Empire, So there would be a need again of speaking in other languages. Verse 45, Peter is saying, There was poured out on them the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 47, he said, They have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. But the story wasn't all over with. Some folks didn't like the idea that he had gone to some Gentiles, and so he was called on the carpet. And you'll find the record of his being called before the elders of the church in chapter 11. And Peter rehearsed the matter and told why he did so, why he yielded and did something that was contrary to all his previous ideas. He broke over his own custom and his own preconceived notion. And he gave the reasons why. And then he went on to tell the story of what happened when he got down there to Caesarea. He says in Acts eleven fifteen the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Verse 16, Then remembered I the words of the Lord Jesus, ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Then in, like, in verse 17, he said, For as much as God, who knoweth the hearts, gave them the like gift, who was I that I could withstand God? Then again he had to give. One account wasn't enough. Sometimes, you know, you get called on the carpet more than once for the same thing. Well, he got called on the carpet again. A uh, different circumstance, of course, but again, he had to give an account. So in Acts 15, up at the general conference, uh, he was called upon to give an account uh, or felt that he should in order to settle the problems that were being raised. And in Acts 15, verse 8, you will find these statements. God, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us at the beginning and then going right on to the next verse verse 9 and put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith and if there's no difference between us and them certainly it means that at Pentecost their hearts too were purified by faith well there's the body of scripture out of which my text comes Uh, I hope you copied it down and and we'll examine them. You can see them in tabular form becomes more impressive than it possibly can be by my presenting it here in this fashion. But let's just take a moment to look back at what we've read and try to determine what is the language that is used to describe this event, this Pentecost event. And, of course, there are various kinds of statements made. Sometimes there's a statement made that God was doing this or Christ was doing this. If so, here are the verbs you'll find. God or Christ baptized. He sends. He gives. He pours out. He sheds forth. Of course, I can't, I can't make you see that unless you've got a, a pretty good eye for an imaginary blackboard. But uh, you'll find them there if you compare those passages of Scripture. If the Holy Ghost is spoken of as the subject of the verb, the Holy Ghost comes, or he falls. If men are spoken of, uh, men are endued. Ye shall be endued, or ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now that's the terminology that's used. All of it is there in those passages I read to you a moment ago concerning the event at Pentecost. There's another thing that I think is is significant. How much significance to attach to it, I am not sure. And some very uh, fine people who I admire a great deal can't see any significance in it. Uh, Well, that's their privilege, but since the Bible makes a difference, it seems to me there must be some reason for the difference. Uh, If you look at the titles, whenever the Holy Spirit is spoken of, You'll find the word in these passages almost always the Holy Ghost. You will find the word my spirit used in the quotation from Joel. You will use the word comforter used about five times by Jesus. But one time in those passages I read to you, he equated the comforter with the Holy Ghost, the comforter who is the Holy Ghost. And three times, He uses the name Spirit of Truth right along beside Comforter uh, to describe him. So those are the titles uh, that are used. Now, one other question that may be raised. There are those who uh, say that what happened at Cornelius' household was not the same thing as what happened at Peter, uh, or happened at Pentecost. But Peter, who was there on both occasions and ought to know far better than we can looking back, made some identifications there are five times in those passages i read to you from acts 10, 11 and 15 in which peter uses language which identifies them not just once but five times he makes it plain for instance in acts 10:47 they received the holy ghost as well as we in 11:15 the holy ghost fell on them as on us in uh, Acts eleven seventeen, 17, they received the like gift as we did. That's pretty hard to dodge, isn't it? And then Acts 15, 18, even as he did unto us. And then Acts 15, 9, put no difference. I don't know how you can get around language like that. It seems to me that conclusively identifies them as to what happened and as to their condition in order to receive. That particular event. Then there's another thing that I think we notice from uh, a study of these passages. Who is eligible to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well Peter has already said that the Apostles and Cornelius received the like gift and all the rest of the language that I have just quoted for you. So they must have been equally eligible in some way they must have both been qualified to receive the same experience because God certainly wouldn't give an experience to one demanding one qualification and to somebody else not demanding that qualification. There would have to be the same reasons why he could give it. Now if we look back we'll notice that all of Jesus' promises concerning the coming of the comforter are addressed to his disciples not to the world. Peter did address the crowd there and said you can receive the Holy Ghost but he said repentance will have to come first and then John fourteen seventeen, if there would be any doubt about it at all uh, that's one of the passages I did quote for you uh, back in John the 14th chapter verses 15, 16 and uh, 17 uh, he says I'll give you another comforter the spirit of truth uh, and then he says the world cannot receive him And he gives the reason why the world cannot receive him, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. In other words, the worldling, the unconverted person, for certainly that's what the word world means, the unconverted person has no qualifications, no spiritual aptitude, no spiritual capacity, might be a better word, to receive him. They're still in sin. So he says, the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But he says, ye, you disciples, know him. For he dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. Now I know there are those who say that the reason why the world could not receive the Holy Ghost then is a dispensational difference. But you notice Jesus didn't say a word about dispensation. He said the difference is spiritual capacity. The world's not able, the world's not capable of receiving him because they have no no acquaintance, no preliminary acquaintance will, which will let them receive him. And then uh, there's another passage of Scripture which seems to me is one of the most conclusive of all as to the eligibility for receiving the Holy Spirit. If you look just two or three verses after my text, back there in Luke 24, after Jesus had promised them The coming of the Holy Spirit. He said, ye shall be endued with power from on high. And uh, his disciples believed the promise, but they didn't receive him for several days. But what was their attitude while they were waiting for Pentecost? I've heard some imaginary descriptions, and I've made some imaginary descriptions of my own as to what they might have been doing. And it's easy to suppose, and I wouldn't be surprised it might have been true, that Peter might have had to apologize to somebody, and maybe James might have had to apologize to some. The Bible doesn't say a word about that. We're only just simply reading back into what they did is what we have to do today when we're in a somewhat similar situation. But notice those people. They went back, and they were, they were filled with great joy. They were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. I remember many, many, many years ago hearing C.W. Ruth. I came along just in time to hear a few of those great old men who passed off the scene of action about a half a century ago. I did have the chance to hear C.W. Ruth. And I remember his talking about this very text of Scripture. And in those days, of course, the thing you had to combat was the idea that the disciples were backslidden and needed to be reclaimed. If these fellows were backslidden, I'd like to have a church full of backsliders. They were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Does that sound like sinners? Does that sound like backslash? Not a bit. Oh, this tells us who's eligible for this. Well, the second thing I said the text points to, not only to an event, Pentecost, which I tried to describe to you in Bible language, but it also points to a person. Now there's a danger. All of us are in danger doing it, uh, of doing something, and I think we do it inadvertently, unintentionally. We tend to uh, sort of localize the work of the Spirit to one experience. There are those who say, and most of you I'm sure here would say, Oh, the Holy Ghost comes when you're sanctified. There are some who would say, No, you receive the Holy Spirit when you're saved. I think that one of the things that both of us, uh, whichever side you're on, are making a mistake in, we tend too much to equate the work of the Spirit only with one event. Why, we need Him all the way through. How does a person get saved anyhow? Isn't it because of Holy Ghost conviction on a sinner? And, in fact, you can find in one of John Wesley's uh, sermons... uh, I cannot give you the reference of the moment I didn't intend to give it But it just comes to my mind uh, That he says A sinner has to receive the Holy Ghost In order to believe Now of course that's language We wouldn't wouldn't want to say that Uh, That would kind of upset us and horrify us Uh, But the fact of the case is That the Holy Spirit works at every level Of Christian experience Uh, He works in a different way There are different capacities of his work I'm quoting now from John Wesley, and I can give you the reference here. It's in his sermon on grieving the Spirit. He said, and this is only a part of his quote, The Holy Spirit is the immediate minister of God's will upon the earth. Daniel Steele said uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, is the administrator of the Godhead. Somebody else has uh, used another word, coined one and said he is the conveyancer of God. You, you can't find conveyancer in, the, in Webster's dictionary, but I think you can catch on what it means. He's the one who takes anything God has and brings it to us at whatever stage we are. But we must be careful to clarify the difference in the operations of the Spirit. Now, uh, there are some texts in which we have the Holy Spirit named, Specifically in connection with regeneration. The first work of grace. You can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you must be born of the Spirit. Look in Romans 8.15, there are two passages there. You receive the Spirit of adoption, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. And he said the Spirit itself. Itself, of course, it is there because of the gender of the Greek verb, not, not indicating at all that, uh, I mean the gender of the Greek pronoun, pardon me, uh, not indicating at all any, any lack of personality but the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit and look in Galatians 4:6, where you have another text, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba Father, well here are some Regeneration text talking about what the Holy Spirit does in the experience of regeneration. Now let's let's analyze them again. Here we find to some extent a different set of verbs: born, receive, beareth witness, sent forth. Now you will find two verbs there which also occur in Pentecost texts. Receive and send. In other words, they are referring to. To the general work of the Spirit And may apply at any stage of his operations Any stage of his work Look at the titles In none of these verses is he called the Holy Ghost I think there's significance in that He's called either the Spirit Or the Spirit of Adoption Or the Spirit of Christ But in none of them is he called the Holy Ghost And Wesley has a comment on that And similar language has been repeated by other writers. Whether they were copying Wesley or not, I don't know. But but he said the word holy in the title Holy Ghost expresses the Spirit's work in making men holy. And again, you'll find that in his sermon on grieving the Spirit in case you're interested in in running down that reference. In other words, he's saying to us that there is a total range of the Spirit's work. Spirit works at every level. Some time ago it occurred to me if the Spirit's working at every level we ought to be able to to correlate passages that tell about Christ's provision and the Spirit's application. If the Spirit applies all Christ has provided then we ought to be able to find some correlated texts. And when I look, they're there. I can only just kind of pick out a sampling for you. It's, It's much more extensive than I'm able to give The limits of a service like this, and and I'm hampered because I know I can't present it to you visually, which would help a great deal in this particular case. But let's look at various stages in a person's life, in a Christian's life, beginning with a sinner going on up, clear all the way through life, Uh, For every stage is a statement of Christ doing something for us, some provision. And there's a matching text to tell us how the Spirit applies that work of Christ. Sometimes several matching texts to tell us how the Spirit applies that work of Christ. For the sinner, Christ died for the ungodly. Now what does the Spirit do for the ungodly? Well, there are two texts of Scripture I'd like to call to your attention. And they point out that there are two stages in the Spirit's applying Christ, the benefits of Christ's death on Calvary to a poor lost sinner. First of all, he has to awaken him. That's a part of what we call prevenient grace. And then he has to make him a new creature. And that's a part of what we call saving grace. So we find, the, the Scripture says, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come... Uh, One of the things he will do uh, will be to convince or reprove is the word in our King James Version reprove men of sin. We call it old-fashioned conviction. And then it also says born of the Spirit. Well, there's the Spirit's work for a sinner to change him from a sinner into a child of God. Now, Now that he is a child of God is there anything the Spirit The Bible says that Christ does for a born-again child of God. Oh, yes. Christ loved the church, Ephesians 6. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And what is the text referring to the Spirit? Acts 59, referring to the event at Pentecost... And uh, it's being the same thing as what happened at Cornelius' household. God purified their hearts by faith. Now, if there's any text that will identify, to my mind, past any question, uh, that Pentecost is is the same thing as entire sanctification is that text of Scripture. He purified their hearts by faith. Now, if anybody would have any question, we might just turn aside a moment... uh, To refer to something that James said in in the fourth chapter of his little epistle, in the eighth verse, he addressed two groups of people. He said, Purify, or cleanse your hands, ye sinners, but you who are double-minded, purify your hearts. Not for sinners, but for somebody who no longer has unclean hands. So pure hearts is something that happens to a Christian as a second work of grace, and here Peter says in Acts 15.9 that God purified their hearts by faith. But now, the individual is saved, he's sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we tend to think, well, we don't need him any further. Oh, yes, you do. You're going to need him at every step all along the way. And Christ died to provide. Provide. Grace for us from the moment we're saved and sanctified as many years and as many miles as you have to go. Notice this, 1 Corinthians 5.10, Christ died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Well, there's Christ dying for living grace. And look at all the promises of Jesus about the coming of the Comforter to get us a text applying to the Spirit's work. He'll teach He'll bring to your remembrance. Uh, oh, how we need that. How easily we forget. Uh, but he's there to bring to our remembrance. Uh, and then uh, the book of, uh, of Romans, the eighth chapter, says that uh, he will be our, uh, uh, our guide, uh, the leadership of the Spirit. Uh, and you may know, go on with a number of other texts talking about the work of the Spirit. Uh, and here's an area that perhaps a lot of people haven't thought about uh, the resurrection. The Bible says, and connects directly Jesus' death with our resurrection. That is, in Christ dying, there's resurrection provided for us. You'll find it in 1 Thessalonians 4. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also who sleep in Jesus. He describes the rapture and the resurrection. And then we have this statement from the 8th chapter of Romans, the 11th verse, talking about resurrection again. If the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, that Spirit shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit. I haven't quoted that quite right. God shall quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Well, that puts the work of the Spirit even up to resurrection. John Wesley refers to that as as one of the, the benefits of the Spirit's work. And again, I can't give you that reference. Well, there is one other thing I would like to call your attention. I said this pointed to some effects. Two words there in that text of Scripture that I used. uh, He shall be endued with power from on high. Now, those two words, power and endowment, are words that oftentimes produce a wrong idea. Now, we've come to use the word endowment as though it were some miraculous Manifestation, but the word enduement is just simply, and the, the Greek word is all is spelled almost exactly the same as our as the English verb "endue." It means to clothe. It is used twenty-eight times, including my text in the New Testament. Thirteen of those times, it's used just simply putting on clothing, like uh, John was endued with uh, with a leathern girdle and, and uh, camel's hair. It's used of, they're putting the purple robe. They, they endued Jesus with a purple robe. It's used uh, in other passages, five times, uh, pardon me, 13 times concerning clothing, just, just mere clothing. Five times it's used of our being clothed with a resurrection body. Those are mostly in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Then there are ten times in which it is used in a spiritual sense. That is, as one puts on clothing, so, so there is something to put on as far as a Christian is concerned. And this will help us to see what is meant by being endued. Four times is the Christian's armor. Most of them in Ephesians 6, one back in Romans, uh, one in Thessalonians. Uh, but uh, put on the Christian armor. Two times, put on Christ. Two times, put Put on the new man. And one time, Colossians 1, 3, 12, Put on as the elect of God, and listen, uh, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Isn't that the kind of endowment most of us need? It isn't some mighty miraculous manifestation uh, that will put a halo around our head or something of that sort to, uh, no, we need the practical thing that will help us to live right, and live kind and live gentle, and live holy down there in the stress and the tear of life. And then, of course, my text here, power be endued with power from on high. In the light of these, I am saying that the endowment is an endowment of power for holy living. Then there's the word power. endued with power. Now, that word power occurs a great many times seems to me if I remember correctly I, I didn't put down the count here I think it occurs something over 170 times in the New Testament uh, Only about, uh, about one third of them is it even translated power The word itself actually means ability of any kind Now we tend to think of power as some great mighty manifestation And you've heard it said over and over again that The Greek word for power means dynamite Well that's totally wrong It turned it right around, dynamite comes from the Greek word for power. But so does dynamo come from the Greek word for power. And so does dynamic come from the Greek word for power. So that God's power isn't always explosive. Of course we'd like to have the explosions, the dynamite. But sometimes it's the steady pull of the dynamo. And sometimes it's that dynamic, that inner fortification. uh, comes only from the presence of God within the heart. Uh, So uh, since the word uh, dynamis, the Greek word from which dynamite, dynamo, dynamic come, uh, occurs so many times in the New Testament, it was entirely impractical to try to look at them all. So I tried to find, and I think I had them all, places where the word power is used with the word spirit. The spirit's power in men. There are two passages particularly, one is in Romans 15, two verses, one in 13, one in 19. Peter, uh, Paul says uh, that uh, God had given him power in, the, in his ministry, yeah, so that with mighty signs and wonders he was able to preach the gospel of Christ fully. Yeah. you find that in Romans 15, 19. Yeah. That was for Paul, an apostle back up to verse 13, Romans 15:13, where again we have spirit and power and here that spirit, the power of the Spirit produces joy and peace and hope. Quite a lot different isn't it? I think what Paul is saying is just simply this that the power of the Spirit enables you for the holy, living, holy service, holy activity, Whoever you are, if you're a Paul, all right, then you'll get some some special help for the place Paul has to fill. If you're just a common, ordinary person, you're not going to get the power that Paul needed. You don't need it. God doesn't waste it. But he'll give you the power you need to live right down there where you are. Unseen maybe, unnoticed, but power to live there under the trials and the rub of everyday life another passage 2nd Timothy the first chapter in the 7th verse God has not given us the spirit of fear but of power and then I think he explains that power by saying and of love and of a sound mind now you're well aware just as aware as I am of the fact that there's a lot of misuse made of the word power Maybe you get advertising, I don't know where they got my name, but I get advertising uh, talking about uh, uh, tremendous miracle uh, campaigns, uh, healing, and if you'll uh, only send back a little offering of $5 in this envelope, uh, you'll always have prosperity, you'll be a rich man. Uh, I think that's that's almost blasphemy. I think that's a terrible travesty on the power of God. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are talking about that sort of thing. They seem to think that power means a Samson or a Hercules. No, that's not what it means. It means an inner stability for every Christian, and when necessary for public ministry, the kind of power it takes to preach the gospel of Christ in a convincing manner, backed up with the power of the Holy Spirit, now, sometimes those folks who appeal to miracle power will quote the text of Scripture, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In other words, uh, if Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, we ought to have the same healings uh, that he had. Uh, we ought to be able to uh, speak in tongues, uh, and uh, everybody ought to be able to be rich. It seems they, they like those three things. Now, it's strange that they don't uh, pick out some other things. If they're really going to say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, why don't they multiply loaves? Why don't they walk into a cemetery and call somebody out like Jesus did over at Bethany? Well, it's obvious why they don't. They only pick the things they like, and the whole thing is a mere sham and a pretense Now just note that text of scripture, it didn't say Jesus Christ does the same yesterday and today and forever. That's the way they want to interpret it. But it doesn't say that. It says Jesus Christ the same. In his character, in who he is, he's unchanging. Always and forever the Son of God. Always and forever the Savior. Always and forever the Redeemer. But he isn't doing today all the things he did yesterday. He isn't walking on water today. He isn't creating worlds today, as far as I know. Of course, I don't know what He's doing way out there at the far reaches of of space. But as far as I know, He's not creating worlds today. He's not dying on the cross today. He did them, but He's not doing them now. And then there are some things He's going to do, He's not doing now. This text does not say, like they want us to believe, that anything Jesus did then, He is doing now. It only says He is the same in character and in person in what He is. <clears throat> now there's one other passage of Scripture that we ought to take just a moment to glance at. My time is almost gone, so it'll have to be just just a glance. <clears throat> in all fairness, I think we need to look at Acts 1.8 where we did, uh, I read it to you a little while ago, uh, Ye shall receive power of the Holy Ghost coming upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Now, I know there are those who run away with that text of Scripture and talked about power for witnessing, power for service. And most of those holiness folks have backed off because we don't like their emphasis. They've talked about power for service, but they don't want any heart purity. And so we've been scared of it. But the Bible still says, power and ye shall be witnesses. So we'll have to take a look at it to be fair to the Word, fair to what God means. What does it mean to have power to witness? Well, I don't think it means to be able to go around and heal everybody that you meet. uh, Or I don't think it means to go around and speak in tones that will knock the person down to whom you're talking. Uh, We sometimes look back at the events that transpired in Finney's life and the time when he went into a shop and everybody uh, was stricken to the floor or something like that. I don't think it means that. What does a witness need? Well, first of all, a witness needs capability. He has to be able to talk. And I think the Lord will give us ability to talk. Of course, it's a lot easier to talk about some other things than it is about about witnessing for Christ, but I think there will be an ability. Maybe He'll not make you fluent. Maybe He'll not make you eloquent, but He'll give you an ability to talk. Second thing a witness must have is credibility. No use your talking if folks don't believe what you say. There are some folks who witness, and their witness is not credible. There's something we sometimes say, fishy about it. Uh, The witness is not credible. Well, I think the Holy Spirit needs to give us credibility for our witness. Uh, And then there also needs to be convincing. Uh, A witness must be convincing. There must be that about them Uh, that carries that conviction because of the presence of God. Again, I say not necessarily with great manifestation of miracle power or something like that. Uh, But enough to convince them this is the message of God. Uh, Not necessarily they yield to it. Uh, But they can't help but feel God is in it. Now to summarize it, there's a passage of Scripture in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts that I think very, very well sums up the whole situation. This is after the second time that there was a mighty manifestation of the Spirit in the book of Acts, once in chapter 2, once in chapter 4. And it says concerning them at the end of that fourth chapter, it said, With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace Was upon them all Well I think that's the fulfillment Ye shall be endued with power For eleven men The apostles With great power Gave they witness of the resurrection Now I don't know how many disciples There were at this time There were three thousand converted On the day of Pentecost There were more than, uh, than Eleven to begin with There were hundred and twenty in the upper room 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost then there's 4,000 mentioned in the the fourth chapter whether that's including the 3,120 before or added to them I don't know but but at any rate uh, you've got not less than 3,120 and 11 of them have great power uh, and uh, 3,109 have great grace well I think we belong in the 3,109 don't you think but thank God wherever you are whatever class you belong to, whatever number you're in, great grace was upon them all. He shall be endued with power, power to have that kind of great grace when the Holy Spirit comes. I don't want to take for granted the heritage
0: of holiness that has been... I don't wanna